Hey folks, this is Dave Cathy, food editor for The Oklahoman and author of the Food Dude blog. For the past 10 years, I've concentrated coverage on Oklahoma City's burgeoning dining scene while sharing recipes of my own and those sent in by Oklahoma's best home cooks. And in that 10 years, I've met some amazing people, and at the behest of many, I'm going to introduce you to a lot of them right here on a new podcast we're calling Community Table. Now, I just want to take a quick second here to discuss the blueprint of this podcast. Like most projects I engage in, there isn't much of a blueprint here. So that means we might get lost every now and then. But it's a risk worth taking, you know, because loss sometimes gets a bad rap. Loss forces you to take action. It's where the good stuff often happens. You know, it's where you're getting lost in thought. There's nothing wrong with that. Lost in love, you know, on and on and on. Hopefully we'll get lost in conversation without descending into the land of the lost. This is going to be a, a collaboration, but it is a strict no sleestag zone. Conversation will be rooted in food. You know, that's the area I cover. Food, drink, cooking, entertaining, hospitality, fellowship, all that stuff. The things that bring us together. I guess, you know, it's the, uh, the parcels of community. Anyway, we're going to root in food and we're going to try and keep the provocation to a minimum. We're going to argue, but we're going to try not to fight. And we're going to try and build this virtual table into something anyone can gather around, as long as they have a story to share. Who knows? This community table may even go analog someday, with a little luck and with a little help from you all. So this is episode one, and we're calling it Inspiration, Perspiration, and Chili. So pull up a chair to the table. As I mentioned before, I've met some amazing people over the past decade, and I'd be lying if I said hard work I've witnessed hasn't inspired me to work harder myself. If you think you're a hard worker, try running on a baker's schedule for baker's wages. A few years ago, I was fortunate enough to begin working with the folks at Arcadia Publishing's History Press to write a couple of books about Oklahoma foodways. The first was a culinary history of Pittsburgh County, which focuses on how the Italian immigrants saved the town of Krebs after the coal mining industry tanked. And, of course, they continue today to, to be uh, Oklahoma's Little Italy. <laughs> no small amount of hard work was put into that operation. The second was the classic restaurants of Oklahoma City. And in doing the research for both of those books, I was blown away at the sheer man hours committed to feeding us over the years and today. But as far as Oklahoma City is concerned, there's a couple of names from the annals of dining history that come to mind when I think of inspiration and perspiration. Annamont Smith was the queen of Oklahoma City's cafeteria era. And Beverly Osborne, who preceded Kentucky Fried Chicken by two decades with his Chicken in the Rough franchising concept. Beverly's Pancake House still stands on Northwest Expressway, across the street from Integris Baptist Hospital. Both of those two were barely five feet tall, but left in a legacy that we still feel today. Both were relentless leaders in the industry. Osborne invested more than 50 concepts during his life. Anamod treated her competition like apprentices encouraging their successes and politely offering advice where she felt they might have room for improvement. Like I said, those two laid the groundwork, laid the foundation for the dining scene we enjoy today. And a few legendary eateries sprouted up along the way in their wake. One of those was the cellar at Hightower. It's generally considered the city's first fine dining restaurant. And its chef was a kid from Hilton named John Bennett. When Bennett wasn't busy preparing a tableside cafe brulot at the cellar, he was very likely walking through the front door at Glen's Hickory Inn. Oh my God, I love that place. You walk in and there are cases of silver. Okay. 
on both sides and you kind of go down a little uh four or five steps and in front of you is this wheel that's probably probably eight feet across or nine feet across and it's got ice all in it and stakes are laying all (laughs) over it all over this thing with you know the little green uh, faux yeah. parsley. Yeah, right. Well, they right. were. It was separating it all. Yeah. And uh, but the stakes were oh, outrageous, <laughs> outrageous. And so, so then, uh, once you were seated, uh, we would go to the bar, of course, mm-hmm. piano bar. Mm-hmm. But once, <laughs> they called it the club something or another. I forgot what it was. But once we got in the, uh, at the table, they had, uh, they brought a Frank Homa pottery uh, boat. The boat had uh, celery, uh, what do you call it, uh, crab apple, a uh, piece of pineapple, olives and something else i can't remember what else was stuck in this but it was all in a bed of ice sure complimentary right you know and then they brought the you order salad and this they brought this wheel that had probably a half a dozen stainless steel little containers that whirled around, which we love doing, you know, <laughs> and, and blue cheese and, and, and vinaigrette. The most famous chef ever born in Oklahoma City was introduced to the industry also burning hickory. His name, Rick Bayless. You may have heard of him. He's the author of numerous cookbooks and the host of the long-running PBS series Mexico One Plate at a Time. Well, he was born and raised right here in the 405. His parents, John and Levita, owned and operated the Hickory House Restaurant on Southwestern for close to four decades. But what opened Rick's eyes to the possibilities offered through the culinary arts was a trip to the cellar. Nobody in my family had any interest in going to the (laughs) cellar at the the Hightower restaurant. And I decided at 12 years old, I was going to go eat there. So I took the bus downtown, I called and found out how much it was going to cost. I saved my money. I went down there by myself on the bus, dressed all up, (laughs) went to the the cellar. I'll never forget the experience of it because I had, I'm still, I can remember exactly what I ate. I had steak Diane. Okay. It's real classic old stuff. Okay. Steak Diane and chocolate mousse. Okay, I don't know what they thought of a 12-year-old in a suit and suit walking in the door at lunchtime and saying, I'd like a table for one, please. And I sat down and I ordered the thing and they had this piped Duchesse potatoes around that were all gratinade. And then I, I got the chocolate mousse. And you know, the chocolate mousse experience, I will never forget because it came in a silver bowl and you could have as much of it as you wanted. And I, I looked at it and I think I didn't even breathe breathe as the server went in and hoisted out big spoonfuls of it for me. They probably got a real charge out of it. Oh my gosh. Well, I got to tell you, I got to thank you for telling that story because I'm positive 
that Chef John Bennett will be watching this oh, good. on his computer and his head will explode. <laughs> well, I actually, I actually met him a few years ago. I've met him several times, but uh, the last time that I met him, I said, I have to tell you my story. And I thought, it's probably down in the annals on the history of that restaurant. But he, he told me that he remembered all those things and the piping of the potatoes on there and the browning of it. And it's like, I could remember every deal. It was my first experience in fine dining. Bennett would spend a good portion of the 70s in San Francisco, and Bayless would head north and settle in Chicago. About that time, Oklahoma City's current preeminent chef was just a teenager. Kurt Fleischfresser grew up in Yukon, but for one fateful birthday, he chose a place in Oklahoma City for dinner that would change the direction of his life. One of, one of the first uh, probably mind-blowing bite of food I had was when I went to the Great American Railroad, and uh, there's still some of those guys around, by the way, and then uh, uh, I had a steak, and, uh, and, and first of all, my whole deal with falling in love with the restaurant business and everything else is, is you know, my family, you know, middle income, my dad was a traffic controller, and, but the one thing we did once a month is we'd go out to a restaurant, mm-hmm. and when we did, I mean, they treated my dad like a king. I mean, it was like, that's, this was... You're here, here's hospitality, here's this. And it was such a departure from anything else I did. And subconsciously, I just wanted that experience. And it, and then, you know, the food didn't catch up until later, but the experience really yeah. left an impression on me. And so, you know, and when I went, I could pretty much get whatever I wanted. And, and I got the, the most expensive thing was like the strip and the huge shrimp that they yeah. butterflied and left the shell on and grilled it. And I'd notice how good that shrimp was with the shell on mm-hmm. grilled and I thought why didn't everybody do this <laughs> you know so later on in life I create a shrimp cocktail where we roast it in the shell and yeah. pull it out it's a it's a pain but it's so you know just yeah. most of the flavors in the shell so why not when cook it's it in the, the memory shell? like that yeah it's, it's not it's going anywhere yeah. 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 so that was kind of what how you old know, were you when you when that happened I was probably 15 15 so you're talking about 75 76 yeah. somewhere yeah. in there yeah Dining out is a common way young chefs find inspiration. But Sean and Kathy Cummings found inspiration in their respective Kansas City neighborhoods. In this conversation I had with the owners of Vito's Ristorante and Sean Cummings Irish Pub, they take us back to Kansas City in the mid-1970s. You'll also hear about my first ever brush with culinary discernment. So, okay, so where in Kansas City was the Italian neighborhood when you um, Well, we call it the North End. The North End, mm-hmm. okay. And... <coughs> <laughs> we'll get there. And, we'll know, get there. there is we'll a, get there. There is a street named after my dad there. Yep, there uh, my mom and dad got married in the church down there. Um, he actually lived there until the day he passed away. Uh, I've got cousins down there. I've got relatives. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, the North End. All right. It is yeah. the center of everything <laughs> the Italian. The center of everything Italian. <laughs> and, all right, so... Italian girl in the north end of Kansas City. Let's rewind. <laughs> what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Let's rewind a little bit. Sean Cummings. Yeah. You were were you in the Italian neighborhood? Were you a no. were you an interloper? No. no. Well, no. you worked at a restaurant. Yeah, in that's, north okay. End. that's okay. That's I actually, okay. That's I actually okay. helped open what is probably the most um, um, well-known Italian restaurant in Kansas City called Garozzo's. Oh yes. And I worked oh, with yes. this guy named Mike Garozzo, and he had a big yes. scar. In his, uh, in his chin, and he talked like this, yes. and he'd be like, come on, how about we do it like we used to when we cared? Come on! <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> he so, was a character. I love it. So all, all and all of the local um, infamous folk, you know, used to dine there. And yes. so I got uh, Barry I, Trammell uh, to this day uh, when he goes to to uh, Kansas City. First place. First place he goes. Oh, I, yeah. it, the food was dynamite. It, it really was. was. And, it uh, still is. And they really had a top flight crew open it. And it was, he was just a waiter yeah. in Kansas City. And he finally had this banker, and I can't remember what the guy's name is, loaned him 35 grand to open that. And that was all. <sighs> right. So I worked down there. And it, the lesson on the whole thing is white people are known as Mitaganis, and it's a bad word <laughs> um, to the Italians. And I was the local Mitagani. So, uh-huh. like if, yes, he was. If Even some, when I married him, that's what they called yes, him. Yes, they did. <laughs> And worse. Who's this Mitagani you're marrying, Kathy? <laughs> and they didn't mind saying it to me either. So right, right. So people don't know what it means. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh, right. Exactly. So the uh, what, what you end up finding out is that um, cultures are all pretty similar in a lot of ways. Big families, everybody's loud. You know, the the food was the main thing there. Irish people, food's not really the main thing. We're yeah. more music and beer. Yeah. Um, and so I had a blast working there. Do I want to do that my whole life? No, probably no. It's it's a it's it's just a different culture. They they've got a little more of the bravado thing going yeah. on, and uh, and I had a blast. But uh, I, Italians and Irish didn't mix that much in Kansas. Right. City. Yeah. Right. And so tell me right. about that. Well, she's well, on the north end. Where are you? Because both of them had their own crime stuff going. Right. On. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Some but competing. you want to hear something really yeah. funny? Is that I dated a guy that worked there with Sean. Uh huh. This was later on. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Sean ended up, did you throw a pepper grinder I at him? I hit him with a pepper mill. Yeah, there you go. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm not over her. He's yeah. just a jerk. Yeah, just in general. <laughs> he, see, he was looking out for you even then. Even then, there is, but, you know, but really, Dave, all through our lives, there was something kind of intertwined, yeah. but kind of on the outskirts. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, it was really weird. So their country club market, my dad owned a milk route back in the day, and you sell milk to them. At the country club dairy, which was right across okay. the street. Right. It, was, it was a strange little town. So mm-hmm. what you got to realize is Kansas City runs by parish. And all of the families are really huge. And so you might know who a family is. It doesn't mean you know every individual, Catholic but you know parish. them by look. Yes. They're all yes. run by Catholic yes. parishes. I was going to say, that's another thing right. Italians and, and Irish have in right. common. Right. Catholicism. Because, right. yeah. yeah. you know, Sean yeah. was from Visitation. I was from St. Elizabeth's. And right. we had um, how many in between? So we had St. Peter's. St. Peter's was all. Was the only one. Yeah. So mm-hmm. one so, mile, every essentially every mile, there was another large Catholic community with a church and schools and everything else. So it's highly competitive. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Highly. So oh, like yeah. the block I grew up on, there were 144 children on our block. We had the smallest family with seven kids. <laughs> People would rumor that my mom was lazy because she didn't have any more kids. <laughs> I mean, it was... Only seven? <laughs> if you can't compete with food, you got to compete with uh, your there, there you children. Go. Population. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a fascinating place to grow up. And, uh, and we had one Italian family on our block across the street, Mrs. Adelini. And they had Tupperware. So we'd have the lousy food at our house that could feed 15 and nobody right, got sick. Right. And then I would sneak over to their house and eat leftovers out of Tupperware. But we had hey, to remember, if you had like, Tupperware, you were like, something because, you know, we used cottage cheese cartons. Yeah. You I, know? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We did both. We yeah. had both. I remember both. And nobody you know? had microwaves no, you know, when I was no, young. So no. you actually had to reheat that stuff or eat it cold. But I noticed their house smelled different. Mm-hmm. You know, our house, you'd go and it just smelled like a lot of people were there. And there <laughs> smelled like garlic and onions and yeah. red sauce. And, and there, yeah. you know, somebody Meatballs. was always making yeah. something. Yeah. 
And man, I liked it. I, I didn't have a crush on Mrs. Ottolini, but I loved her food. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. see, I have, okay, I have a very similar story. Uh, uh, when I was uh, seven or eight, I, I guess I was eight, we were moving from California to Texas. And um, so my dad had a business. So it was not only just moving the family, but moving the business. The whole deal. So it's like a couple months of going on. And so I spent two or three weeks with uh, a neighbor uh, who was Puerto Rican. And she's my mom's best friend, and this woman could cook. I mm. mean, the oh, real thing. Oh yeah. My yeah. Gosh. And she would just make the simplest things, like a like a really tough little uh, sirloin or some little top sirloin, and just beat the hell out of it with a hammer. And then she would just coat it in garlic salt mm-hmm. and 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 magic, right. you know. And then put it in the thing and eat it. And I just it just blew Best me thing away. You ever had. Yeah. yeah. And and I remember this. I, <laughs> this was essentially my first uh, restaurant review, really, in a in a yeah, manner yeah. speaking. Because when I got home, or my mom finally got home, we were talking. I said, "Mom, you need to learn to cook like Feline." <laughs> oh, <you're gone. laughs> And my mom was yeah, a good cook. Don't say that. Yeah. She was a really good cook. And she <laughs> was just she laughed. offended? A little, but yeah. she was like, I understand what you're saying, though. She's a really good cook. Because <laughs> oh it was a completely different profile right. of foods. Right. Than and, and, and I bet you could say, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, you yeah. could probably still smell right. that. Oh, my gosh. You know? yeah. yeah. It's just, and the, yeah, uh, there's a place out in Bethany called Barreria Diaz. Mm-hmm. And they have a dish on the, it's the beef, red chili, the beefsteak chili rojo, I think, uh-huh. or something like that. And it is that flavor. I mean, wow. it is that That's the place yeah. with archway windows in the front. We I think so, that. yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's so authentic. And But that, fla- I don't know exactly what it is, mm-hmm. but it's like, yeah, that's it. That's wow. that's that's the flavor. That's the and one I remember. And then all those memories just oh, came back. Oh, yeah. It just yeah. all comes flooding back. It's like, yes, this is, this is, this is where it all began, kind of, you, you know? There Everyone you've heard from today is connected to Oklahoma City Dining, but all of them have spent time elsewhere during their careers. Fleischfrizzer worked in Chicago and Dallas and Arizona before coming home. Sean and Kathy would come to Oklahoma City almost as a second career after establishing themselves in Kansas City. Bayless, of course, still visits once or twice a year, but he's made his, his name as an international chef based in Chicago. Well, one local restaurant icon who never left is Florence Kemp. See, while the others were finding their way back here, or for the first time, Florence was busy cooking. Born and raised in the black town of Bowley, Kemp came to Oklahoma City in the early 1950s. With courage beyond her years or profound ignorance of how slim the odds of success were for a young black woman with no practical experience, she opened Florence's restaurant in 1952. Her inspiration wasn't culinary art or Beverly's Chicken in the Rough. Florence just needed a job. was always poor and I knew that I wasn't able to go. My parents were unable to send me to college. Mm-hmm. So I just decided that I would try to open this little place. Mm-hmm. And we lived in the back. Mm-hmm. There was a little place in the front that we rented. So I just decided that we would try to uh, open that place. Uh-huh. And I tried to get my, my mother was working for OK Furniture, and Co- OK uh-huh. Furniture Company. And they had moved to Gertrude, from Oklahoma City to Gertrude. Uh-huh. And I tried to get her to come in with me, and she said, oh, no, you go ahead on. She said, when you get in, I'll come in and help you. <laughs> and so I was a little bit afraid, you know, but <laughs> a friend of mine, a friend of ours, uh, the Pruitts, they had a printing company up the street. And they always said that I went in business with two chickens and a prayer. <laughs> so... I've always told them those two chickens in the prayer have really been working for me for a long, long time. It's a sound investment. Mm-hmm. 
Fast forward 66 years, and Florence and her daughter Victoria still own and operate Florence's Restaurant at Northeast 23rd and Fonshill. They spent a recent afternoon sharing their story. Tell us about those early days. Was it? I mean, how was business? Was it tough to get a regular business, or did it? Or did you? Were you lucky? Well, I was lucky. Yeah. I was lucky. I started out with business, and uh, I guess everybody around Fourth Street, the 900 block on Fourth Street, knew kind of knew us and mm-hmm. knew of us, and mm-hmm. I went in, and they immediately started coming in eating. <laughs> and uh, I guess the chicken must have been good because it was cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had hot dogs and hamburgers. Uh-huh. And I said, we used to sell so many hot dogs. I said, they weren't but 15 cents, and the hamburgers was 25. <laughs> <laughs> so we sold a lot of them. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. But our business is good. They're coming in buying these 15 cents hamburgers, hot dogs, 25 cents hamburgers. And then I, I, here recently, I was looking through some old papers and throwing some away, and I found a uh, it was Burger Brothers Meat Company. Okay. And they used to bring my meat out to me every day or every other day whenever I would call them. And I found that hamburger meat was 22 cents a pound. <laughs> and I said, oh, my goodness, 22 cents a pound. No wonder I could sell some hamburgers <laughs> for 25 cents. That's crazy. Uh-huh. So... And, and then when did you move into this building that we're, that we're in right now? I really can't remember, but she does. She remembers. 1969. 1969. Okay, 1969. So between 1952 and 1969, uh, your menu develops, right? You yes, well, the- we, added, we added some things. And, mm-hmm. and we took some things away because we took those, those uh, 15 cents hot dogs away. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wise choice. Mm-hmm. Replace that with some home cooking, I take it. Yes. Yeah. And you've been, uh, you know, been going pretty strong ever since. Yes. Now, Victoria, why don't you tell us a little bit what it's like growing up in a, in a place that, you know, let's see, it wouldn't have been too old when you were born. It would have been a mature restaurant. But as, you, but as, you're, as you're growing up, it's becoming an institution in the neighborhood that you're growing up in. Yeah. You know, and especially by the time you probably got back from Dallas, you fully realized, t- talk a little, most people don't have that experience. Um, you know, I just, I, you know, this is what I always tell her is that she, she had a dream, she, and she realized her dream, and she didn't dream a bigger dream, and right. she was so happy. And yeah. she told me, I was so happy with my little business before you came back here <laughs> and started doing things to it. But... <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I remember as a child always, I always on some level understood that this was a staple in the community, mm-hmm. that everybody was in here. And, you know, as I grew up, I kind of saw um, a difference in the patrons. Mm-hmm. Not, not really a difference, but more people, different mm-hmm. kinds of people, different ethnicities yeah. come in. And, you know, now I think we see everybody. Right. And that's, that's one of the interesting, I mean, it's obviously an interesting part of this place is, you know, Ms. Florence grew up in Bowley, which was a black town back when we actually had what we called black towns, designated towns that was black population. And Forest Street was yeah. the heartbeat of the African-American yes. community Absolutely. at the time she opened this place. That's right. That's right. But 
when she had to move mm -hmm. and she and she moved to 23rd Street. Um, it, it, it's so funny to me because, you know, most people now, most families have two cars, mm -hmm. and, you know, whatever. But in those days, yeah. most people didn't have a car right. or they had one car. Yeah. And she was so worried that her that her people would follow her from 4th Street to 23rd Street because yeah. it seemed like such a long oh. way. <laughs> it did. That's right. I can yeah. totally see that. Well, yeah, it's it was considered the outskirts of town, right, for for a long, long time. But then I guess the the uh, the neighborhood grew up around you. Yeah. After all, well, the, about the first day, the second day, I was a little, you know, didn't many people come. The, <laughs> the second day, and about the third day, they just fell in. <laughs> and they, just, they figured they, out how to get here. They, yeah, they just started coming in, and at that time. We had ordered some furniture, some, but it had made it here. So we only had one table and two or three chairs, and I had ordered something that I never had before was an ice maker. <laughs> and uh, the people was coming in, and they didn't have any place to sit, uh, you know, and everything. And I said, oh, well, we, our furniture will be here soon. Our furniture will be here soon. <laughs> any minute now. <laughs> any minute now. I was told a lot of times I opened up here with about maybe 25 plates and yeah. everything to go with it. <laughs> and they were coming in so fast and said, I didn't have enough dishes for them, you know. Mm -hmm. So I said, and we didn't went from 25 dishes to 200. <laughs> <laughs> a lot about places to eat so far, but there are times when we must fend for ourselves. Just as we must learn to find food, we must learn to prepare it. Many folks stop at ramen soup in the microwave, and there are others of us who will uh, purchase the Culinary Institute of America textbook for weekend reading. Until my family moved from California to Texas, my mother had always forbidden me from turning on the oven or stove. Texas is where I learned to cook. First with a newfangled microwave oven, but ultimately with a cast iron skillet. And the first dish was chili, Texas chili, uh, the kind that you made using a Wick Fowler's two-alarm chili kit as purchased by my father. When I moved to Nebraska for college, Wick Fowler's could not be found, so I had to turn to Carol Shelby's chili mix. No matter where I lived, chili was getting made. And because of my upbringing, it was in a single-minded way. Eventually, I would learn how to grind my own chili powder, and even make chili without using powder at all. But there is one part of my chili that has never changed. And I had a conversation about this with Chef Mark Dunham of Nashbird and Iguana Mexican Grill. He grew up in New Braunfels, Texas, which is the event horizon of Texas chili-making legend. We share a similar view of chili with an eye. To every Oklahoman, there are no beans in chili. Yes. I'm yes. so sorry that yes. you feel that it's way. It's just the way we were brought up. It's just so, you, know, you, you. I mean, New Braunfels was the home of the Chilimpiad. That's right. For years. And I used to draw like 20,000 people back in the 70s. I mean, yep. it was a huge deal. So what are you going to do? So, you know, and so, yeah, it kind of comes back to what some stuff we've been talking about, which is when you when you take root in a, in, in a certain soil and grow – you have a terroir. That's right. You know, and our terroir is no beans in the chili. Chili beans are a side dish that I personally, if I make chili, I'm going to make me a pot of beans to go with it. Because and they better be as good as the chili. Yes, because if I not, don't you, make them. They're going to have the same flavor yep. base that the, that the chili has, so that they'll match up. You know, I'm going to make two separate. Two separate sofritos to to, to right. base my chili on, and then one's going in the bean pot, and one is going in the in the beef right. pot, and and so that's it. 
But yeah, you know, tell me about the, your views on chili. Or well, your own style. Come so the, we, the you, funny the funny thing is, is you know, again, it's the emotional versus the pragmatic yeah. thinking about this because um, clearly people cook chili differently, mm-hmm. just like barbecue, right? It's it's a fight that you can get into every time, chili and barbecue. Right. Um, so as much as I tease people about not putting beans in their chili, mm-hmm. I still eat it. Sure. As long as it tastes good, I still eat it. I'm not going to turn it now, down. Now, I will say that your chili will always be second rate to me. <laughs> And that's okay. I agree. So this is, you know, this is where we're going to... You have we're a gonna, delicious uh, non-championship chili. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to agree to disagree on this. Um, you know, I make it very similar to where uh, the way that my grandmother made it, and that was that's with uh, chunks of beef shoulder and ground meat. Yeah. So both, thing. right? And thing, so it's yeah. like chili con carne, but with chunks of beef shoulder. Yeah. Um, there are no tomatoes in my chili. Okay. So you're doing more of a true chili Colorado. Correct. Like, yeah. Um, now, most of the time when I make it, there are no tomatoes. Yeah. Now, if I've got a half can of tomatoes and I don't want it to go to waste, I'll throw mm-hmm. it in there. But my, it, my preference is no I, tomatoes. I it's done onions, that. garlic, yes. beef, yes. and chilies. There you go. And then salt and just a tiny pinch of Mexican oregano. Yeah. You know, I use tomatoes, but I don't use them... I use them as uh, as acid. Sure, that's essentially. Yeah. I, I think of it in those terms. It's like I want a certain amount of acid from mm-hmm. these tomatoes because yeah. I don't want to add lime or lemon or, or vinegar or anything like yep. that. Uh, it's a much milder vin- uh, acid, right? And so, and that acid, I feel like there is a little bit of a blossoming. Sure, that it adds to. But I, but the tomato, the amount of tomato I use will be negligible, right? Uh, con- compared to what. You know, you usually see it'll be. I like I said, I start with the sofrito, and that's what I'm trying to do. I make a little sofrito with tomatoes to kind of pull gently pull that acid out yep. on on the very front end, and then that becomes a part of the, the overall foundation. It's going to get covered up mostly, right? But it's just the acid I'm trying to use. Now I'll say, when I don't make that version, mm-hmm. if I don't make that version, I apply zero rules to my process <laughs> because then it's a, it's either right. I make it this way. And I stick to a very steadfast, or I do completely rogue and I try all sorts of different things. Yeah. So it's one or the other. That's what I love. So about it's, it's it's either I have no rules. Yeah. And I'm just going to freehand it and try something different, or I go back to this one standard. I like that. But that's the ability. That's the ability to. And again, it's like I I hear people all the time talking about chili, and it's kind of it's just a fun bantering. Mm. Oh like, sure. Like sure. J D Merriweather talking about his stupid Cincinnati chili. I mean, <laughs> Stop it. If you're listening, you got to shut up about that. Come like, on, JD. You got to shut up about listen that. To Greeks I tell mean, us how to if make you chili? give me an overcooked noodle one more time with your chili, <laughs> tell me. In a kidney bean? Jeez, oh, Louise. My gosh. Come on, guys. Come on. I mean, I, 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 we appreciate you for. for, for you tried. Listen, yeah. your whole city tried. Yeah, you can't try. You cannot partic- participation is so show up. You showed sure. up, sure, and that's a that's a huge huge thing, and we appreciate that. Yep. But uh, cinnamon is for toast. That's correct. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm eating whatever bowl of chili you set in front of me, as long as it's made from the heart, and as long as it makes me sweat a little. During my conversation with Sean and Kathy Cummings, I referenced a woman named Feline and a restaurant called Barreria Diaz. I wanted to kind of circle back to that. Here's something I wrote about Barreria Diaz, which is in Bethany, back in 2012. 
What the Diaz family has brought to the market from Aguascalientes, Mexico, by way of Pomona, California, hits me in my inner kindergartner. On my last trip, dining with my son Luke, I ordered the beef steak in chili rojo. After one bite, I insisted my son stop eating and taste the dish. Once the beef slathered in rich garlicky sauce, a little tomatillo, and plenty of rehydrated red chili passed over his palate, I said, the flavor in your mouth right now is the flavor that sparked my love of food. I finished that column by writing, sometimes I want food like Feline used to make, and that's when I go to Berea Diaz. That's still true today here in late 2018. I can still go to Berea Diaz, but I can no longer go with my son. Unfortunately, we lost him to an accidental overdose in February 2017. Luke loved everything about food, including the flavor. He was training to be a chef when he died at the age of 19. This podcast is in part dedicated to his memory, so we will not shy from talking about the struggles that led to his death. We will talk about depression and drug abuse because Luke wasn't alone in dealing with those problems. Problems like those don't go away if we hide from them. They've got to be met with good faith, optimism, and resolve. Hopefully, we can approach this project with those same tenets, but we can't do it without stories. We've been collecting them since July and continue to do so now. We're going to build this community table together because it's the best way to do anything. Everyone's invited. Like I said before, the only price for admission is a story to share. Our thanks to this month's contributors, Chefs John Bennett and Rick Bayless, along with Kurt Fleischfresser. We also had Sean and Kathy Cummings, Florence and Victoria Kemp, and Chef Mark Dunham. For producer Paige Dillard, I'm Dave Cathy. Join us when we wrap up 2018 and look to 2019 and share more stories from the local dining sphere on Community Table. Mm-hmm.